ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Gentlemen, this is Democracy Manifest. Have a look at the headlock here. See that chap over there? He, get your hand off my penis! Get some cups. Why did you do this? Get some cups. For what reason? What is the charge? Eating a meal? A succulent Chinese meal? This little grab is from a video of a man being arrested outside of a Chinese restaurant in Brisbane back in 1990. The whole thing lasts just over a minute and it has been watched online by millions of people. And the series of bizarre and outrageous statements that this man makes in his mighty theatrical baritone as he's being bundled into a car by policemen, they've been repurposed on T-shirts, on stubby holders, as song lyrics and countless internet memes. Most of the people watching and sharing the video don't know who this guy is or what's really going on. The truth is even weirder than you might imagine. The man in the video is Jack Carlson, a serial criminal, prison escapee and one-time celebrated actor. His life is the subject of Mark Dappen's new book, Carnage. Mark himself has a long interest in the stranger stories of crime and warfare, partly stemming from his own experiences growing up in the UK. Hi, Mark. Hi, how are you? Very well. Let's begin with this video that we just heard a clip from. How do you describe it? What what happens? A man calling himself Jack Carlson, who we will call Jack for the sake of this conversation, is being bundled out of a Chinese restaurant, as you say, in Fortitude Valley. A number of police officers are attempting to restrain him and push him essentially into their car. Now, Jack's a big bear of a man and he is resisting, but not really violently resisting. They're they're trying to wrestle him and he's using his weight, the sheer weight of his presence to kind of not not so much fight them, but, but almost humiliate them. One of the arresting officers has sort of described the experience as almost unique in his life as a policeman because only innocent people react like that. Only innocent people react with outrage. And the theatrical outrage that Jack managed to confect in that moment, which ends with him being bundled, I I think, feet first into the back of the car. All, All they can do is kind of make a piece of luggage out of him. Yeah, the the extent of the theatrical um, outrage that he conjures is is testament to his strength, I I guess, as an actor. And why do you think it has received this second life as sort of a millennial touchstone? Why has it become such a huge viral thing on the internet, this weird clip? Well, even at the time, with those who saw it, the punchlines became kind of common in their workplace. So Chris Reason, the Seven announcer, who was the reporter whose crew were filming the clip, he told me that back at Seven, for for years they were going, I'm just going out for a succulent Chinese meal. (laughs) And unfortunately, one of the arresting officers said his career was hampered forevermore and he was known to superiors hand-crank Harry So right from the start, it's the fact of a crim, an apparent crim. I mean, Jack was never convicted of anything as a result of that arrest. A crim using language that is so inappropriate to the situation. Um, It's as if it it were overdubbed. You know, he's using a syntax, a grammar and indeed a vocabulary that is, uh, (laughs) you know, is far from common among criminals that I've met before and since. One day, Mark, you answered your phone and the man in this video clip, Jack, was on the other end. Did you know who he was when he rang you up? No, I had no idea. I'd I'd never seen the video or heard of it. Um, I was just getting on a coach to Canberra and, you know, (laughs) Dan Sawyer's voice says, um, my boy. I understand you are writing a book about prison escapes. I believe that my own escapes from custody are worthy of inclusion in your work. And I said, who is this? And uh, Jack Carlson's the name. 
Uh, um, I'm just getting on a bus, you know, mate. And uh, I, I said, I'd never, I'd never heard of him. I'd actually more or less finished the book, which is how come he'd heard about it. And I just wanted to get on the bus and I was polite, um, but closed the conversation. And then I received a phone call from another fella who I know did um, time in Pentridge in the 70s. And he said, sorry, I gave Jack your number without asking, but you have to speak to him. He's the most interesting crim you'll ever meet. Those were his words, the most interesting crim you'll ever meet. And yeah, he was telling the truth. And that was enough to, that description was enough to get you out to meet him. Where did you first encounter him? I wasn't really, I was still a bit reluctant. It just happened that we were coming up to Queensland uh, for a holiday. He lives, I guess, almost in the bush. And I did say I'd visit the property, but I I don't drive. I've notoriously failed my driving test uh, seven times. And the last time I failed, my partner said, I don't care if you pass, you will never, ever drive our children. (laughs) So um, there was no way I could get there independently anyway where he lives. But we came on holiday and my partner drove me there with my daughter to this property up this private dirt road. And there is a... (laughs) a kind of place where people like that, if there is anyone like Jack, live. And it's not strange to see, you know, a dirt bike turned upside down or a boat with a tree growing through it or, or, or any, any number of curious kind of relics of, you know, misguided parties or whatever's going on. But Jack's, it's the only property I have ever been to where you go down a dirt road and there's a an unplumbed spa bath there. <laughs> Not only was there an unplumbed spa bath, they looked like it had dropped out of a plane that for some reason had a spa bath in it. There was a plumbed shipping container with a shower outside. The house itself, I think, it had been troubled by fire. And so at the time, Jack lived more or less in his studio with a, a kind of um, sort of lean-to outside. And that's where we sat and we spoke about his life. And what was he like face-to-face? Um, he was very um, welcoming, garrulous. Uh, I wasn't quite sure what he wanted from me and he wasn't quite sure what he could get from me. Uh, but he did very much want to tell his story. I think he'd, he'd wanted to write a book or have a book written about him. Um, but I, I didn't want to, you know, I, I had no agenda to write a book about Jack. Yeah, fascinating though <laughs> he proved to be. It was only the stories that Jack told me that led initially that led to me writing the book uh, about other people and other events. But yeah, he was at the time he was um, off the drink, so he was shaking quite heavily. He's regularly, you know, on and off the drink, but I was lucky. I think that day he was clear and coherent and didn't fade. You know, he's an old man, but he's still strong when he's sober. And he told me, yeah, a number of fascinating stories. Did you have the sense, I mean, you've spoken, as you you mentioned, Mark, to a lot of criminals, a lot of people with various kinds of pasts. Did you have the sense that this was someone you could trust? I think crime is lying. Most crime, you're... A criminal is pretending to do one thing, for instance, his personal banking, while in fact planning another, for instance, robbing the bank. And it's difficult, or if not impossible, with a good crook to tell what is the truth or his his truth, as people fashionably put it. So no, I didn't necessarily sit there thinking... He's going to confess all he's done to me. In fact, I knew he wasn't. But I do know, it does seem to me, that as some crooks get older, they want to leave behind a record of what are perhaps to them the good times. They they don't mind talking about kind of heroic failures and foolishness, and they love talking about prison escapes. So, yes, I guess I thought he was going to be honest about his escapes and also about his background, but I did not imagine that I was going to get a a confession of everything he'd done in his life. So when he told you about 
his his early life, Mark. What kind of childhood had he had? All working class crims of of those generations after the war had more or less the same childhood. You know, the dad shoots through, the mum tries to cope, and the children, for whatever reason, end up in care where they are abused. That's that's the story of all of them, and and that was Jack's story. And he grew up in some terrible homes that, you know, were playgrounds for pedophiles and incubators of criminality. I mean, that's the harsh truth behind all the humour and bluster. I don't think it's it was inevitable for any of them to end up as criminals, but a lot do, did. A lot end up as suicides. You know, jails are full or were full of men from exactly that background who knew each other from these these schools. As you mentioned, he, he was ringing you that first time about his prison escapes. So let's let's talk about those. What happened the first time in 1966? He was in custody in, in Brisbane and uh, he went up to face charges in Maryborough on a train. And while he was on that train, he was handcuffed to a detective who I believe fell asleep. And while he was asleep, Jack unpicked the handcuffs, which he said was very easy in those days. But I'm sure even if it wasn't easy, Jack would have found a way and jumped off the train at a railway siding in the middle of the night and began a journey to Sydney. And and was he recaptured? He was Long eventually after that? recaptured in Sydney, having stolen uh, <laughs> an unfeasible number of cars, I think, to get there. So that's prison escape number one. And then a few years later, he was locked up on a prison farm on French Island, which is off the coast of Victoria. I guess islands are even trickier places to escape from than, than moving trains. How did he manage that? I, I think the train would, would probably be the harder one, actually. And to go back to an earlier question, you said how certain was I that Jack would be telling the truth. The escape from the train with the keys was reported at the time. I, I found the newspaper cuttings, or Jack might even have given me the cuttings for that one. The escape from French Island, I can't find any record of, but I do believe it happened because, you know, documents just show that Jack was free in the uh, period immediately afterwards. Jack was on the island with some mates and they left the prison camp part of the island and went towards the coast. They had to hide from spotter plane, a spotter plane, which Jack consistently referred to as this biggles after the children's aviator. Biggles. <laughs> biggles. We're, we're followed by this biggles. So he's... They're hiding in swamp and that. And then in the morning, I think it was, they um, they see uh, a fishing boat off the coast um, performing manoeuvres with which Jack is unfamiliar and then stopping. And they um, wade out in low tide and get onto the boat. And it's a fisherman who stopped to haul his catch or whatever it is fishermen do. And according to Jack, they said to the fisherman, you know, we're... We're in French Island, uh, we are inmates, we want to get off. And the fisherman said, sure, I'll take you to the mainland. And perhaps that is what happened. Um, certainly there's no record of the guy making a complaint about it. It seems like they struck on a sympathetic fisherman and he took them to the coast and uh, <laughs> Jack continued his unlikely career from there. What had he been in prison for? He was still a young man at this point. Was it, what, theft or, or what did he been yeah, in Yeah, most for? of his um, offences were what they call breaking. It's kind of shop breaking, factory breaking. They'd break into commercial premises and make a mess of stuff and steal what they could. Well, the next escape was, to my mind, even more daring. What happened after Jack was picked up driving a stolen car carrying safe-breaking tools in in Sydney? Um, He was... um, Reminded in custody due to, due to the weight of evidence. And he and his co-offender were taken to court by a detective. They were taken to court on two occasions. On the first occasion, Jack noticed that when prisoners were placed in a holding cell 
a smartly dressed man came to remove them and take them to court on cue. It occurred to Jack that on the next time that he visited, if he were to pose as that smartly dressed man, he could take his co-offender ostensibly into the courtroom, but in fact out of the courtroom building. (laughs) So the second time that he went to the holding cell, he engaged the aid of the other prisoners awaiting their various, various hearings. He came, he came in with his um, tie done up, his coat done up, like a typical defendant, and then loosened his tie, put his coat over his arm like a more relaxed and at-home detective, and he told the other prisoners in the room to shout, you copper dog, as he escorted his guy, his coe, to the courtroom. The police officer opened the door, um, Jack walked out with Peter Morn in his arm, on his arm, and rather than <laughs> go to court, they went out in the street and, and disappeared. That just it seems is incredible. incredible. Mark. And speaks again to Jack's acting talent and his kind of um, his understanding of physicality, his understanding of the way that different people playing different roles both look and carry themselves. So he just brazenly pretends to be a detective and walks and Did, walks another. Not, not just any detective, but the detective who had just escorted him and his co into the holding. I can understand why the other guys waiting, the other defendants were happy to go along with this, but how did the police or, or the court officials not realise what was happening? I, th- I think it's the strength of Jack's both physicality and personality and the credibility that he lends to a performance. You know, the the, uh, confected outrage in the uh, Democracy Manifest video, something that I think it seems he could just draw upon at any given moment. So why would you stop a detective? And he looks like a detective. You know, he's, he's a big guy with a big head and confidence and a rolling gait if he needs to. Well, why would you think? An entirely unprecedented event was occurring on your watch and an offender had taken the identity of a detective. Well, despite his impressive theatricality, he did end up being sentenced to time in Parramatta Jail. Who did he bunk with there? He eventually ended up um, in a cell with a guy called Jim McNeil, who for a time was apparently the most performed playwright in Australia during an era where, you know, prison playwrights internationally were enjoying a bit of a heyday. Um, Jim was obviously a, a, a very talented man and as as is Jack in, in so many ways, they, they shared a cell. Jack at the time was pursuing portraiture or painting, but portraiture in particular, because he found it easy to sell portraits in in jail, I think, or easier than other kinds of paintings. And um, Jim was writing his plays, which were later to become famous. And, um, yeah, between them, they they had a little creative hub in Parramatta Jail. So Jack was acting in those plays in jail. Did he continue his acting career once he was released, Jack Carlson? Jack acted in jail in, in um, Shakespearean productions as, w- <laughs> as well as McNeil's. When he got out um, with the help of a prison tutor, one of the conditions was that he went to work as an extra uh, for a production company. And, he, yeah, he was in Homicide, he was in Matlock. Once he, he played an escapee, uh, once he played a drinker, so it was all um, to uh, to stereotype, I guess. Did he go back to crime as well? Once he'd got out and had these acting gigs, did he still dabble he, he was, in crime? <laughs> he was never again imprisoned. Never again imprisoned. He married a much younger woman called Eve and her brutal murder, which was one of a series of killings that happened connected with St Kilda criminals and their girlfriends in the late 1970s. That's part of what you write about in your book, Carnage. Did Jack talk about his wife to you or or about his marriage much? Not really. Um, He spoke lovingly of Eve, of Ivanka, and sorrowfully of her death, but he wasn't interested in talking about her murder 
or her murderers. He did refer to them, and I I knew the story. They, I didn't understand who Jack was while I was talking to him until the point where he said to me, and then my wife got murdered. And at that point, I made the link between Jack Carlson and Ivanka Carlson because I had read the story of Ivanka Carlson. You've written about violent crime in other books, Mark, but you say you weren't interested in writing about killers or about their psychological makeup. So what was it that made you press on with writing Jack Carlson's story after you realised that it was connected with some very brutal murders? Um, I, I had no intention of writing about people like that. I didn't want them in my head. I'm not interested in trying to make excuses for people like that, even if they have excuses. And and, and, and I guess they all probably do. Um, but then I'm talking to Jack and I thought, maybe he's the hero. Maybe he's the humour. Maybe there is a way to tell this story. But still, I, I wasn't convinced. It, it's hard. Like I, I found in life that the best predictor of me doing something is me saying I'm never going to do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I ended up doing it. I mean, you say that you didn't want to have to put your head in the heads of, of people who commit these brutal crimes, but you had to put your head in, in that to a degree to tell the stories that are included in this book. What's that like for you as a as a person, to think about those acts, to, to look at the photos, to read the evidence. How does that sit with you? When, when I began to work on the story, when I decided I was going to do it, and that story being not just the story of Jack but the murders that followed, I looked at the inquest records um, in the Public Records Office of Victoria. To my astonishment, they had full transcripts publicly available of the coroner's proceedings of the inquest into all the people who were killed in that first burst of murders that followed Eve's jailbreak of Quinn. And I made a a conscious decision not to look at the crime scene photographs. So within the coroner's report, within the coroner's files available in the public uh, from the public records office, there is also a book of photographs essentially of the murder scene and the murder victims. And I'm not looking at them. (laughs) What am I going to get from that? Um, But after about 18 months, when I went back to look at the files, I did. I did look at the crime scene pictures. Um, Not because I wanted to see dead bodies. I was actually looking for... I was trying to describe the environment in which they lived because these were all the in in this initial series of murders, the victims and the perpetrators were all in the same social circle. So I I just wanted to I got my friend to take me around all the houses, all the addresses in St Kilda and beyond. So I'd seen them all from the outside and I saw where they were in relation to everywhere else in the book, but I went to see them from the inside. But inevitably, well, not inevitably, I chose to look at the pictures of the corpses as well. And for the first first time, because I've avoided these questions of mental illness, I've avoided these questions of personality, and I'm, I'm interested in social causes. And for the first time, I'm looking at these pictures, I'm thinking, well, what kind of a person would do this? You know, you, you've got one life and somebody has thought the best way that I've got to spend in my life is murdering and mutilating people. And then I thought, well, what kind of person would write about it? You know, I've got one life as well. <laughs> why am I choosing to write about this? And I'm still not sure why. I'm, you know, and I still feel that in a way, if I do make any money, which will make a change out uh, a book, um, you know, I'm making money out of med. You're turning, I'm turning carnage into entertainment, you know, just from the title of the book. And I'm not sure whether it's a morally justifiable enterprise. You know, I'm not equating it with, with causing actual physical harm to people, but it's certainly the only way you can justify 
is, you know, inventing some feeling of duty towards the victims, or it, if not inventing, they're nurturing. And, you know, I tried to do that. Um, but in the end, I think you just continue to do something because, because you started it. Um, or, sorry, I continue to do something because I started it. Um, except get your license. Except get my driving license. But I did, I did went on for a very long time. I failed six times in Australia, once in Fiji. I was the only white guy they could remember who failed in Fiji. And the last two times I failed in, in Australia or in Sydney, and the guy once said I was driving so slowly I had no respect for other road users, and then he said I was driving so quickly I had no respect for human life. So what, where did I have to move on that one? Sarah. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Mark, let's move from Jack Carlson to Mark Dappen. Where were you born? I was born in Leeds in Yorkshire. My uh, mum was a nurse and my dad was a, he used to be a factory worker in a tailoring factory when he met my mum. He was older than my mum. I, I think my dad left school unable to read. I think my mum taught him to read and once he could read, he became uh, a salesman of a uh, greetings cards and assorted um, related commemorative novelty items, <laughs> such as you may be asking what they I may be. I certainly am. For instance, he he used to sell uh, plastic number plates that for say say it was a twin's birthday, you could buy a plastic number plate and the number was U two R one U two R one, but incredibly. <laughs> <laughs> that exact same combination of digits could be used for a 21st birthday number plate. You are 21. Genius. Yeah, so he um, sort of sold these. He bought them or supplied them and then he sold them to um, news agents and greetings cards. What changed in your family when you were, were 10 or so? Well, when I was about six, I suppose, there, there was a room... Mis- misclassified in my mind as, as the spare room. Um, I thought of it as my room on, on account of the fact I had, I had my bed in there and I lived in there now. But, but somehow it came about, a rumour spread through the house that it was in fact a spare room. And uh, we took in students, I think overseas students initially for the British summer holidays, during which time I had to move into another room no, which in my mind was my brother's room and then my, mine and my brother's room, but I still coveted what was ostensibly the spare room. Um, and then uh, after we were a couple of years, we had these European guys and then we took in a student for a whole year from Leeds University in the spare room, my room. And then when he went, we took in another one and then when the other one went, my mum went with him, um, as did me and my brother, Leaving the room, ironically, spare, <laughs> now I think about it. You were just a kid. Like, did you have any idea what was happening, that your parents were, were separating and you were moving with your mum and, and this new guy? Or, or what Not was making really. sense to you as a kid? I didn't, I didn't understand it. Like, the night before, I, I heard my parents arguing in the kitchen. I never heard my parents arguing. They weren't sort of shouty people. And then my dad said, oh, you're going to go and live with your mum. And maybe, I can't remember if he said any more than that. And the next morning a taxi came and, and drove us to these flats, uh, old house converted into flats. But no, I, did, I didn't understand what... I didn't understand that there was any kind of romantic relationship involved. I, I just thought that... I'd understood that, you know, people could be moved out of their room for no good reason and put in another room anyway. So <laughs> Continuation of that. Yeah, it, it, to me, yeah, there was... Uh, there was a, a big age difference between your mum and, and the student, but did they, they stay together? Was it a, a love story? Yeah, of course. It was a great love story. My mum was 17 years older than him, and he's only 10 years older than me. But they stayed together my mum's whole life. My mum died on Boxing Day, 
last year and last week would have been their 48th wedding anniversary had she still been alive. So, yeah, it was a great love story. What about your dad, Mark? What happened to him after your mum left with with he, your He brother? remarried very quickly. Probably, I think he remarried before my mum got married again and he died, I think, when I was 24. Um, he had a heart attack on the operating... He went in for a gallbladder operation and he had a heart attack on the operating table. So I didn't know him very well. I didn't get to see him very much. In the years after we moved out, and my dad was very, very, very interested in football. He really loved football. And uh, my dad's funeral, my dad's brother, my uncle, said to me, oh, you know, your dad loved football more than he loved you. I said, yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> but I kind of did, yeah. <laughs> really liked football. Was he saying that as an apology or just like just to make sure you're, you're clear? I think he was saying it, don't feel bad, don't feel guilty, whatever else, your dad always had football. I, I think that's what he meant. It's a bit hard to parse at the time. How important or, or what kind of role did Jewishness play in your family growing up? What happened was quite strange because my dad and my mum were both Jewish, but my mum was quite a militant atheist. And my dad, whilst, you know, traditional, I'm not sure had any kind of, you know, spiritual <laughs> side. Uh, and so it wasn't very much while they were together, but when they split up, my dad felt with some cause that we would now lose our links with the Jewish community. And he, so he kind of upped his observance um, and it meant that when we spent weekends with him and the woman who was my stepmother eventually, you know, we had to go to shul on Saturday morning instead of watch the wrestling or banana splits, which is, is what we wanted to do. But at a time when, you know, it was impossible to be a part, a full part of that community anyway, because back in those days, you know, divorce was very, very rare. And marrying out, as it used to be called, was not unheard of, but it was a terrible thing. You know, my mum had left my dad for, a, I'm not sure what Paul is, uh, for a Christian, um, which, was, which is not approved of. Well, you're supposed to board up the rooms and cover the mirrors and stuff like that. Uh, I think my, my granddad might even have covered a mirror, but he was, he was a cabinet maker and reluctant to bring out his tools in his retirement, <laughs> <laughs> even, even to board up the room of an adulteress. You moved with your mum and her new partner eventually to Aldershot. What kind of place was it when you were there? Uh, it's an, Aldershot's an army town, a garrison town very much in those days dominated by the army. If if I remember correctly, we had um, second para, third para and depot para. Uh, parachute regiments were on rotation, four-month tours of duty to Northern Ireland to fight the IRA. And they were hard people and they were just as hard when they came back to Aldershot as they were when they were in Belfast. Um, Aldershot had been a target for the IRA, there'd been two bombing attempts. One had taken out the officers' mess and killed some paras as well as some civilian workers. The other was a bomb that didn't go off in the railway station. So it was a target. It was close to the sort of infamous Guildford pub bombings as well. That was to get in part to get soldiers stationed in, in Aldershot. So... It was a town that drew its ideals, I suppose. It's it's heart from the army. A lot of the civilian population worked in defence-related industries or were settled-down soldiers. You couldn't go out in the town at night as a civilian unless you wanted to get in a fight with <laughs> Paris, which some people did, truth be told. So it was a big drinking culture then too with those yeah, army yeah, regiments? Yeah, it was when, when they were back. You know, some places had signs outside saying no pass-outs, so you couldn't just go on a day pass from the base and spend time there. The town centre pubs were sort of divided between paras or airborne and, you know, other regiments, because there was lots and lots of other army as well there. 
even other army couldn't go into Paris pubs, couldn't go into Pegasus. Um, they were for airborne only. It know. sounds like a, a war zone that you're growing up in. Well, it was people who'd come from a war zone to decompress, <laughs> I suppose. But there's also lots of other, you know, just base troops and Remy and engineers and all that. Um, but the, the Paras gave the town its character, you know, para burgundy was everywhere and they used to wear these sweatshirts say um join the army travel around the world meet exciting interesting people and kill them they used to wear yeah yeah paras used to wear them and it's only a small town so yeah as soon as soon as you kind of moved into the town center you're in army para airborne territory whatever so what what was what was school like in Aldershot? It wasn't particularly academic. <laughs> it was really rubbish, but it was fun, you know. It was that was great. I, I loved um, I loved it. But what did you, you what didn't did you learn love? Learn anything? You didn't learn anything. Well, what did you no, love? It was funny. Um, I had loads of friends, and you know, everyone was in the same situation. <laughs> you know, it, it, was, it was a disgrace, really, the way they taught. And they were all, you know, trying to be hard, just shouting at you, calling you by your surname, threatening you all the time and gave you something to kick against. But there were no academic standards. They they didn't really know what to do with me or a couple of other really bright kids as well. Yeah, they had no idea how to cope. So growing up in this military town, this army town, in a working class family, what was expected for your future? What did you have the sense around you was was the pathway that, that you should be following or were likely to follow? I, I don't think we were working class. We were sort of declassé, if that's how you pronounce it. Like my my mum's dad and my dad's father were, were both, in fact, cabinet makers, but my step dad was you know he was a science student and he by the time I was 22 he was a a civil servant in London my mum took a degree as a I think perhaps the reason we were taking in lodgers was because mum was at university as well I'm not sure I've never asked why we why we took in lodgers and she's dead now so so um, I'll never know but but perhaps it was because she was studying you know my mum was um socialist and my stepdad was a socialist and sort of talking about us being working class but we weren't really in the same situation we were although we'd lived in flats and then in social housing and we were kind of living living that life but with this more educated politicized values I mean that's what it was really like. So what do you think your mum wanted for you then? Everyone wanted me to be a writer everyone always from from how young? Ever. Why? How, how did they know that about you? When, when I was 10, I did a, a newspaper for our street. Curi- curiously. Uh, what were some of the headlines? They, oh, the, the police had captured Ronald Biggs, a great train robber on a nearby golf course, um, which we didn't have. <laughs> so you just invented so, stories? You know, I, I guess. That's the only one I remember. <laughs> um, but then when mum, and, when mum and dad split up, I got a, a poem published in some magazine and then uh when i was at school uh i got a short story there's an anthology used to come out every year run by wh smith's wh smith's children as writers it was a really big thing and there was quite big money prizes for kids and i came second in my year with my short story um and that was a big thing at school and i got in a local paper and that yeah so i was always doing little bits of writing and I was always writing short stories and it was obvious. My mum, I think my mum bought me a typewriter when I was maybe 10. So it was clear to you and, and the people around you that you had this talent with stories, with words. How did you plot your way there after finishing school? What was the next step? Well, I thought I'd just make a mess of everything. <laughs> I thought that'll help. How did you start? What was your first mess? Uh, I took my English exam a year early at school because they knew I, you know, and I aced it. Um, then they just didn't know what to do with me and they put me back in English class and I just caused trouble and it, that went badly. And I, I wanted to get out of home and I did 
the next stage, which at the time was A-levels, my matriculation, I went to a TAFE equivalent college. And then I was quite young when I went to university. And I was restricted in the courses I could take because I'd walked out of maths. I'd also walked out of a number of other subjects for <laughs> even less <laughs> pressing reasons. So I, I ended up uh, doing the politics and international relations. And then I walked out of that because somebody looked at me wrong or something. And then I ended up doing sociology and social administration, which was essentially a vocational social work degree. Then after that, I just went into unemployment. I kind of lost, I never really had an ambition. I just wanted to be a writer. I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to be be it. And just went on schemes for the, the long-term unemployed and what was England like in those years? What was the atmosphere in the country? What do you remember? You know, it was the days of Margaret Thatcher and the defeat of the trade union movement, the beginning of the privatisation of what previously had been publicly owned industries. A lot of people got very rich um, in the South. I'm not saying I should have tried to be a part of that, but I certainly made a mistake, I think, in staying in the Midlands, which is where I went to uni. In that time, there was social unrest. There was an acceptance of high unemployment as a price that we had to pay for something or other. I'm not sure what. Other people to be rich, maybe. Um, and not a lot of hope. I think it was kind of hopeless north of London. <laughs> Um, it's hard to put myself in that position now of what I really was thinking. But I, I think I was thinking, ah, it doesn't really matter what we'll do, what I do. You know, we'll soon be living under socialism and everything will be fine. It, instead of that happening, <laughs> you, you stumbled into a kind of a real estate gold lotto ticket. What happened? We were renting a house in the middle of this, a terraced house in the middle of this housing corporation. And uh, the guy who owned it was working in an oil company in Indonesia or something. And he came he came back and he said, I'm selling. He said, you're sitting tenants. You, you've got first dibs. Do you want to buy it? We said, we haven't got any money. We can't buy it. And uh, he said, I'll waive the deposit. I'll just say you paid the deposit. And we still couldn't really buy it, but my partner borrowed the solicitor's fees off her sister. Um, so all we had to pay was the solicitor's fees. And, and then, just astonishingly, uh, about 14 months later, they put on a fast train to London from Coventry where we lived. And suddenly, in just over an hour, you could go from Coventry to Euston. And as I say, at the time, the country was really divided between a depressed and hopeless north and a, a booming kleptomanic south. And now you could commute from one to the other. Uh, so the price of our house went up from, if I remember correctly, 18000 of which we'd only paid 16500 anyway, to 42000 So we sold it and we left. There you go. That's Thatcherism booming, right, Phil, you? For Mark, it all, it all, all, those, all those promises came true. <laughs> it did. You and, and you then partners set off travelling and ended up mm. in Australia. How did you go about finding work here? You know, things hadn't panned out for you well in the UK, to I put it mildly. I thought i start lying. So, start um, lying. Lying. <laughs> I thought lying would be the way forward. So I went for a job. In the first week I was here, I went for a job as a proofreader. And I had worked for four weeks as an advertising salesperson on a free newspaper. So I said I'd work for 18 months as the editor of a free newspaper. Tomato, tomato. Exactly. And they accepted yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was before the internet. You could say what you wanted, really. <laughs> and I did have an honours degree. And, you know, everyone in England's got an honours degree. There, there was no such thing as an ordinary degree, really. But that really impressed the proofreader who interviewed me. And I had no idea about proofreading. I had to have... Uh, photocopied the pages of proofreaders marks out of a dictionary and I was holding it under the desk while I was doing my job but but I got a job and it was a well-paid job and I got it straight away and I did it for the entire year of my working holiday and I met a lot of journalists because at the time journalists used to have to take their copy down to the typesetter so they, they would bring us sometimes handwritten copy sometimes type copy 
sometimes, I, I can't even remember what they call it, it looked like bits of ticker tape. And as a typesetter, you'd put them on bromides and then proofreaders would read the bromides. Eventually, it became apparent that there wasn't, we had too many proofreaders and, well, quickly it became apparent. And I retrained as a typesetter, but then we had too many typesetters. But I worked, I worked as a typesetter and a reader. And desktop publishing came in. Old-style subs didn't know how to use the programs, but the programs that came in were very similar. Well, they were actually based on typesetting programs. So as a typesetter, I could be a sub-editor quite easily because I could proofread as well and I could write. You ended up becoming a sub-editor at some tabloid magazines, including Picture and People, and also worked at Woman's Day, Mark. How did that suit you? I I did this casual around all these different magazines at what was then Packers, and I ended up at Women's Day as Deputy Chief Sub-Editor. That was a great job. I loved that job. Why? I loved being at Women's Day. The work was absolutely constant. There was no time where you weren't working there. The intro was always full. You constantly had to be thinking of headlines. Um, You constantly had to be thinking of snappy intros. You constantly had to be thinking of jokes. Are there headlines from your time in that world that you remember as being particularly proud of? Yeah, well, one they didn't use was there was an absolute non-story that somebody had been in rehab, met somebody from Miami Vice, he'd made a pass at them and they'd left rehab. And I called it Sex Pest. Was it Sex Pest Don Wrecked My Rehab? And I thought it had a really nice rhythm to it. And I thought it should be a cover. And they never used it at all. Was this woman, thanks for bringing that up. Was this Woman's Day or Pitchroll? Woman's Day. Woman's Sex, Day. Sex Pest Don Wrecked My Rehab. It's, it's what, got a good it, ring to it. It wasn't just snappy headlines. You did manage to become a writer, this thing you always understood yourself to be, writing for newspapers and then books. And in your books, in, in the novels and in history and the journalism, you returned again and again to crime and to warfare. Why? What, what draws you to those worlds? And, and do they have anything in common? I'm interested in male-dominated societies. I'm interested in Aldershot. I'm always writing, whatever I write, I'm writing about Aldershot, really. I'm interested in the illegitimacy of authority and command structures, I suppose. And I'm interested in how quickly um, people resort to violence. But, yeah, that, that kind of sociology of organised crime I was interested in, and sociology, military sociology I'm interested in. I'm interested in what makes those societies work and also what makes them implode. Is it partly the life not lived for you, that it was so close to you, but the, say the military world in Aldershot, but not not a world you joined? Yeah, it is that, yeah. Were you ever tempted to, to go into the army? No. I think to succeed in the military, you have to subscribe to an idea of hierarchy an exaggerated, if not respect for authority, then at least acceptance of authority. That, that, that's what the, a military career is about, strength through seniority. It's about working your way up the ranks. It's about proving yourself, respecting the person above you, wanting to become the person above you, if you're making a career out of it. What makes someone a successful soldier is to a large degree an ability to perform the technical tasks of soldiering, but also the commitment to following orders, the commitment to hierarchy, the commitment to dying for for your hierarchy. <laughs> I suspect that most successful soldiers are technically very good at whatever tasks they have in the army and also able to act as though their superiors were genuinely superior towards them. Uh, criminals are more kind of right-wing anarchists. <laughs> they, they, uh, the, the authority in crime doesn't come through seniority. Um, it comes through bluff and brutality. But I guess in both areas, um, there's the threat of violence simmering away all the time, as there was in Aldershot, as there was in my school. And it does interest me. Do you think you'd be more likely to have made a good soldier or a good criminal if you weren't a writer? A uh, criminal. 
criminal for sure. <laughs> because of the anarchic side of it or why? I've seen authority abused to such an extent in my life. In my school, I felt that the school existed only as a structure of authority. There was no education. There was only authority. And I suspect that there are many similar examples in any structure based on seniority um, and exaggerated respect for command, which doesn't mean that it doesn't work. It doesn't mean that if I were to form my own army to get my bedroom back, for instance, um, that I wouldn't have a similar command structure to any other military body. Um, but I wouldn't, I can't be, I couldn't be a part of it. Well, luckily as a writer, you've got no one to be responsible to, no one superior to you but yourself, maybe a sub-editor. Are you saying a sub-editor is superior well, to that's me? My, that? That's my question. <laughs> yeah. Mark, thank you for sharing your life and telling us about the stories in Carnage. It's been great to have you on Conversations. Thank you. It, it's been lovely to meet you. Mark Dappen's new book is called Carnage. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hey, Conversations listeners, Miyuki Okiranta here, host of the Earshot podcast. And if you love compelling and candid first-person stories, then let me tell you about episode one of our new season of stories all about remembering and forgetting. Memory can be a trickster, a soother, a tormentor. But what would it be like to have no memories at all, to forget who you are? I had no recollections, I had no fears the Australian band Rocket Science, fronted by singer-songwriter Roman Tucker, was labelled the next big thing. But everything changed when Roman had a serious accident and lost his memory. Do you know who I am? I guessed. I said, my auntie? And she said, no, I'm your mother. Check out the Earshot podcast to hear Roman's story about trying to remember himself to rebuild his identity. Find us on the ABC Listen app.